someone pointed out that I didn't introduce myself at the beginning of the service. So I'm sorry. Yeah, we're probably wondering who the heck this guy is. He's not Derek. We know that. Uh, but thank you all for having me um, with you. Our scripture for our, our sermon this morning is Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 18. It's in your bulletin printed. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. So that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Most of the brothers and most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice, yes, and I will rejoice. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, we give you thanks for your word. Thank you for preserving this word for us. It is true. It is good. Uh, It is your very word spoken to us, Lord, to remind us, Lord, of Jesus. To remind us of your redemptive plan that you've accomplished in him. So I pray that your spirit would make that truth evident, more evident to us, that we might worship you in spirit and truth, and you might lead us uh, into our lives to serve and to love you, to love our neighbors as ourselves. In Christ's name, amen. So one of my favorite movies growing up was Forrest Gump. And I don't know, it's been out for a long time now, so I'm sorry I'm going to spoil it. I don't endorse it. I probably saw it at an age as a child that I probably shouldn't have seen it. Um, My younger brother and I were joking about that recently. Like, why did my parents let us see those movies? Anyway, it was one of those, but I remember watching the movie when I was younger, and I was emotionally impacted by it. And still to this day, when I think about it, um, I'm I'm impacted by it, the story itself. But what I wanted to share from the story is actually, I'm going to spoil it just just now. Um, a very an interaction at the very end of the movie between Forrest Gump and his love interest Jenny, who he's loved, faithfully protected, just uh, basically run after his entire life, um, and she's continually just uh, shunned him. Like, no, this isn't. At one point, tells him uh, he doesn't know what love is, and he tells her, you, "I may not be a smart man, but I know what love is." I think he does. There's a story in this character. This character in this story, I think, is the most profound character in in a lot of literature uh, or movies because it's as if the one guy who shouldn't have life figured out has life figured out. The one guy who has no selfish bone in his body is the one guy who shouldn't have figured out. But his whole life, his existence, is about serving, keeping his word. Serving other people. This is at the very end of the movie where Forrest reconnects with Jenny, which is his purpose, and this is their exchange. He says, after seeing that Jenny has a kid, he says, you're a mama, Jenny. Jenny says, I'm a mama, and his name is Forrest. Forrest says, like me. She says, I named him after his daddy. Forrest says, he got a daddy named Forrest, too? She says, you're his daddy, Forrest. And he takes a step back. And it's interesting because she reads his response as if uh, he's, he's afraid, like he's done something wrong. Well, they give us, uh, his response actually gives us the reason why he takes a step back. His main goal, his main question is, uh, she tells him, you haven't done anything wrong. Isn't he beautiful? And Forrest says, he's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. But is he smart? And be, being self-aware, he says, or is he like 
before he can say, is he like me? She says, he's very smart. He's very smart. His only thought in that is, will my son be afflicted with what I've had to endure my entire life? He hears that Jenny's sick and dying, and so he takes her into his, his farm and uh, takes care of her and Forrest Jr. Uh, for as long as, as the story goes on. Forrest Gump personifies, I think, this type of selflessness, self-forgetfulness that the Bible shows, what humility leads to. He's not crushed by external forces, external things, realities pressing in. He endures all things despite any setback, any opposition. And he continues to love, continues to serve. A lot of us think that maturity comes through this special mystical insight that's only available to some or if we have to reach this point. Uh, the ESV study notes say that, it, which is really good, it says it comes through the patient practice of the familiar virtues of love and service to other people. Do you want to know what love and service or what humility is, what virtuous living in the midst of opposition is? We need to look no further than the scriptures at those who actually served and loved others in the midst of adversity. It doesn't come through mystical insight. It actually comes through patient practice, endurance in the midst of opposition, especially in the midst of opposition. Paul's writing this this letter here to the Philippian church whom he loves. They've supported him on his missionary journeys and now that he's in prison, they're supporting him uh, still. He's faced a setback. One scholar says that it's like a uh, person, a concert pianist whose hands have been tied behind their back. Paul has set back dramatically. For a traveling evangelist, a traveling preacher, this is the worst place he could be. To be stuck in prison, to not be able to go and fulfill his calling in life, which is to build the kingdom, to extend the kingdom. He's been set back. Not only that, while he's in prison, he hears that there are people out there who are preaching Christ from selfish gain. They're wanting to afflict him just to get at him, to make a name for themselves, to secure a position for themselves while he's in prison. Paul faces two horrible things right on top of each other. But how he responds is is really intriguing. How he responds is really intriguing to me. You see, a first century letter, like if you were to write a letter today, who who still writes handwritten notes and letters? Not many of us. Some of us do. Uh, It's awesome receiving those, right? When you get a handwritten note, you know that somebody's invested in in, in wanting to to, to send you something. Because we just don't do that. We send emails or or, uh, or Facebook uh, messages or tweets or whatever. So they follow a structure, right? If you're writing a letter. Well, in the first century, they would follow a structure as well. Most of the letters in the New Testament follow this structure as well. There's an introduction of who it's from. Because uh, they had to know, like, I need to know who this is from so that I can know whether I need to read this or not. So Paul addresses himself and, who, uh, and, 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 uh, and Timothy to this people that he's responding to, he's writing to. And he tells them uh, about them. He gives thanks for them. He pr- says he's praying for them. He does all that. Well, at this point in a first century letter, there are others that we can, we can put this up next to and show that it's similar. There is a point where, at this point right here where we get to in our letter, where you would, he would say something about himself. Do I need more resources? Am I okay? Am I hungry? Am I well fed? Uh, what do I need? Well, here in Paul's letter, he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about himself. He talks about something else entirely. Instead of venting, instead of complaining, he just shares about something that's going on that's bigger than he is. And without diminishing the gravity of his situation, he shares with them what's most important. What's most important? I want to make a small qualifier here because what I'm going to call us to 
is to whatever adversity, whatever it is that you're facing in your life, or whatever adversity you come to in life, your responsibility as a believer is still to be outward. It's still to love and serve God, and love and serve your neighbor, no matter what is happening in your life. But I don't want to uh, negate this. Processing your struggle is really important. So I want to qualify what I'm saying briefly here at the beginning as we go on. Before we go on, is that processing the struggle is important. So my mom sent me a text message recently. We just found out my uh, older brother is going to go to prison because he broke probation. Um, and she's devastated by this. She had ways, There's a lot of guilt, a lot of shame that she, she bears for thinking mistakes that she's made in her past. And now she sees this horrible, uh, horrible outcome of a situation that she wishes she can control. She sends me a text and she said, God doesn't give me more than I can handle, right? And I said, wrong. Wrong. God gives you, or or life happens. Circumstances come into your life. God allows them. But it is more than you can handle. It is more than you can handle. Whatever setback you're facing in your life, it's not there so that God can show you how strong you are. It's to show you how good He is and how strong He is and how He wants to preserve you even in that. And how He'll never leave you or forsake you. It's not about how strong you are. It's about how strong God is. And how faithful to His promises that He is. Does God give us more than He can handle? Absolutely. It's in moments like this where we don't bear under the weight of it and think that I need to struggle under this and come out victorious on the other side. It's a moment where we go to our knees and we seek the strength of God that only He can give. Bad things are bad things. Paul is able to call the bad things bad things. Um, so don't get me wrong. You don't have to praise God for the chains, for the sickness, for whatever it is that's in your life. You need to praise God despite whatever's happening in your life. So just a small qualifier. Process the struggle. If you're going through something right now, which most of us in some ways always are, if you're going through something, I don't want to negate the, the processing. You read the Psalms. They're filled with process. So, so I just want to encourage you to do that. Uh, but life is not about selfish gain. The Bible is really clear about that. The Bible is about uh, uh, the most selfless person to ever exist, which is Jesus, and how we have been drawn up in our redemption into Him. That we might glorify and love God supremely and love our neighbor as ourself. That is our main purpose here in the world. But what Paul does here is he models maturity for us. And I want to look at how he does that. Um, and we'll look at two things. Why I think Paul uh, is able to respond to a situ- situation the way he does. And, why I th- and how I think we could respond to these situations as well. So two things. The gospel has brought clarity to his situation. And the gospel has brought clarity to what's most important. So first, the gospel has brought clarity to his situation. He knows how bad his situation is. He's in chains, he's struggling, and he has uh, people that are antagonistic against him. He knows they're prideful. He knows that his imprisonment might lead to his death. He knows that this is, uh, it might actually lead to his death. And if he's in prison in Rome, then it does lead to his death. How he responds is so interesting, uh, so intriguing to me. Because he knows this. C.S. Lewis says that pride is essentially competitive. That it's not about getting more of something. It's actually about getting more of something than someone else. uh, Scott Sauls, author and pastor, he actually says that uh, the the child of pride is envy. 
Paul says that these people that are at, at, uh, coming against him, he knows the situation, how bad it is. He says that they're prideful, they're envious of him. And Scott Saul says that envy is such a sinister thing because whenever we should be weeping with others who weep, rejoicing with others who are rejoicing, we do the opposite. We rejoice when others are weeping. And we weep when others are rejoicing. That's what's going on in these antagonists of Paul. Paul knows that. He sees it. Have you ever faced a, an opponent who just wants to take you out, it, feels, it seems like? Somebody who just is set against you. Your setback that you're facing is that they're just wanting a coworker, someone, uh, a sibling, a family member, whoever. They just want to tear you down. Paul knows that, that they're wanting to tear him down. But he doesn't respond to them the way that you or I normally do. So whenever I think about envy, I think about my posture towards LeBron James. Any basketball fans here? For some reason, for a long time, I didn't realize it, but I hate the guy. And I know I'm not supposed to hate, and you say, preacher, what are you doing? You're not supposed to hate people. I know this, I repent of it, I repented of it. But I just did, and for, since he got into the league, I've just been like, what? why don't I like this guy? When I started writing this sermon, I realized, I don't like LeBron James because I want to see the guy fail. Why? Because I envy him. Because I want to be him. I wish I had gone to the, the league. I played basketball, wasn't good enough to go into the league. 5'10", white guy, you're not making it into the league. But LeBron James comes out 6'7", you know, looks like a 30-year-old man when he's finishing high school, just comes into the league and just kills it, just kills it. I wanted to be him, and I realized, as I'm reading about these guys, Paul knows this. He sees their issue. They envy him. They want to be him. They want to take advantage of his position that he's in uh, now that he's in prison and make a name for themselves. They're rejoicing when Paul is weeping here. John Newton says that when people are right with God, they're apt to be hard on themselves and easy on other people. But when they are not right with God, they are easy on themselves and hard on other people. Paul shows us what love does in response to opposition. He goes easy on them. Realize Paul could be very hard and critical on them. He doesn't do it. It is amazing. He knows them. He knows what's going on in them. He doesn't. They're being hard on Paul. He doesn't fight back. Paul shows that he's able to be easy on them. He's not working from a place of emptiness. He's working from a place of being full. He understands that God loves him. He understands that God is for him. That no matter what circumstance comes in his life, God is still with him. That God's love is not dependent upon, uh, or how He shows His love is not dependent upon the circumstance. It's what God has done for Him. So He doesn't allow their, their criticism of Him to crush Him. He doesn't allow their winning at His expense to crush Him. He knows it, but He doesn't let it crush Him. Why? Well, this is the, re- the main reason why I think He does, and this is implicit in the text, is that the Gospel has clarified what's most important for Paul. Do you know this? What's most important is not your circumstances and how well they go for you or how you feel in them or how well you get along with other people. The Gospel's clarified what's most important. And what you need to understand is that your status with God is actually the most important thing. If you're in Christ, your status with God is the most important thing you can have and that you can cling to. Tim Keller says that uh, in a sermon series he preached on Philippians, he said, We of all people, Christians, should be the most buoyant people ever. We should be the ones who float. He says we are like that. We should be like that beach ball. That no matter what is happening, whatever life circumstances are pressing you down into the water, whoever is holding you down into the water, um, 
Whatever they let you go, what happens? What does a beach ball do? Have you ever held one under the water? <laughs> to the surface. Yes. He knows. What happens? Push it down as hard as you can. If it's filled with something that can't be taken away, what happens? It goes to the surface. It's filled with air. Tim Keller says that we believers are filled with something that can't be taken away. Can't be taken away. If you're in Jesus, He fills you. If you're in Jesus, you know that you're, uh, uh, you didn't do anything to earn it. And God has purchased you. He's done what was necessary to redeem you. You should be as full uh, or more full than, uh, than anyone else around you. You shouldn't be crushed by your circumstances, your setbacks. Why? Because God fills you. And even if you are deflated completely and you, do, you face uh, death even, will that stop God from keeping His promises? No. Even at death, God raises us with Jesus and takes us with Him. There is an eternal promise that comes with it. There's an eternal promise that comes with it. So, our status is most important. Our status is most important. Part of our problem is that we forget about our status, our place. God has said He's okay with us, and we still fight with other people to try to gain a place. Right? We want people to like us. We want people to respond to us well. We want our circumstances to turn out well so that we can be full. You're already full, Christian. You're already full. Our problem is that we, we tend to think that we need to be filled with something. So we fight. We vindicate ourselves. St. Augustine says, Lord, deliver me from the lust of vindicating myself. You don't have to vindicate yourself. You're okay. If you're in Jesus, your status is as just, you're justified. You're in Him. Uh, you're as, 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 as righteous as you ever will be in Jesus in your union with Him. You're good. If you know this, you know that God has canceled the debt, the record of debt that stood against you with His legal demands. He set it aside. He nailed it to a cross. You don't have to perform to get anything. You, you get it by receiving. God's brought you into the courtroom, and He said you're not guilty because of the one who's paid your price. So, God, so it's implicit here in the text. Why do you, how do we respond to our circumstances or opponents well in our lives? We have to know we don't have to win against them. We don't have to have them stop antagonizing or fighting against us for us to be okay. If you're in Jesus, you're okay. This is explicit in the text. What Paul does is astounding here because he says he's in prison, he's in chains, but the gospel's not chained. He says, I'm here, I'm able to share the gospel with the prison guards. uh, People are coming to know Jesus, even here in prison. Not only that, there are people who are preaching Christ outside of these walls without fear because I'm stuck here, knowing that I'm put here for the defense of the gospel. They're still preaching. And even the ones who are preaching Christ for selfish gain, I don't care. Let them gain. Let them win. Because Jesus' name is being preached. What is Paul focused on? What's most important? The gospel. The kingdom. That's most important. So that's what Paul focuses on briefly as I conclude here. He focuses on the mission. What you need to do whenever life is crushing you and it's, it's pressing down upon you is focus on something that's more important than these things. Just if, if your life is not going the way that you expect it to, doesn't mean that God doesn't have a purpose for it and that He's not working something out for His kingdom to go forward, for His gospel to go forward. There is a bigger picture, and that's what you need to focus on. That's what Paul does. He focuses on what's most important. His place with God 
and the work that needs to be done. God's still at work, even if Paul's not able to be outside working. So he focuses on, knows the situation, he knows what's most important. How well do you respond to opposition? How well do you respond when life is just crushing you? If you're like me, the last thing I do, or last thing I think of doing is this. The last thing I do is, 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 uh, is, uh, is respond in, in a way that I know I should. I turn in, inward and say, woe is me, God, take me out of this situation, help me, get me out of here, and I only focus on myself. Or when I focus on the antagonist, I fight against them. I don't do this perfectly. And if you're like me, whether you're a believer or you're not a believer, that's not the point. The point is not that we do this perfectly every time. The point is that we've entered into union with one who has. The gospel is this, not that you're strong. It's that one who's come is strong enough, and he's accomplished it for you. You see, Jesus is where we find this perfectly uh, exemplified and where we find the power to do this. Why does Paul respond this way? Well, because Jesus had already done it for him, with him. He's empowered him. What did Jesus do? He doesn't focus on his circumstances, on the people around him who are seeking to afflict him. He focused on the Father, his place as a son of God. And he focused on the mission. He focused less on what was happening to him for our sake. He focused less on what people were doing to him because he was thinking about what it would take to save them. He selflessly gave Himself up so that you and I would never be fully or finally crushed by our circumstances. That is who we've entered into. If you're in Christ, that's the Gospel. It's not that you're strong. It's that Jesus is. And He's accomplished it for you. And as you've entered into your union with Him, this is the way God sees you, as if you've responded the way that Jesus has. And that's such a beautiful message of good news. Let me conclude with a quote by Scott Sauls. He says, King Jesus, whose kingdom is forever, whose government will always increase, He looks at every square inch of the universe and He declares, Mine. He won this right by sacrificing Himself. He gained exaltation by taking a low position. Jesus, the Prince of Peace, He took off His royal robe and He placed it upon us. He handed us His sword. He made Himself vulnerable to us and we used that sword against Him. He did not strike back. Instead, He did nothing out of rivalry or conceit. In humility, He counted us more significant than Himself, himself, looking not to His own interest, but to the great need of of humanity dying from a fixation on itself. We are dying from a fixation on ourselves. Especially when life is hard. Especially when we turn inward. Jesus didn't do that. And as we've entered into Him, this is what we've entered into. A one, one who's come to die for us. That is the good news of the Gospel. He died for our fixation on ourselves. And I, this is how you do it. How do you grow in Christ-likeness in, in trying circumstances? It's not try harder. It's lean more into Jesus. Lean more into Him. And you will find all the resources to be filled up, to be strengthened, to love and respond to your neighbor, no matter what's happening in your lives, the way that He has. Let's pray together. Lord, we give You thanks for Jesus. Lord, we give You thanks for His work, what He's accomplished for us. Lord, for those of us who, uh, um, who, who who trusted in You, Jesus, I pray that this Word would be a, a good reminder of that. 
Lord, that You've died for us. Lord, You died from our fixation, for our fixation on ourselves. Help us, Lord, to be outward focused even when life is crushing us. Lord, help us to be outward focused, to love and serve our neighbors the way that You did, Jesus. But Lord, I pray especially that Your Holy Spirit would comfort us and remind us that we're not perfect, but that in You, Jesus, we have everything we need. and You've accomplished everything we need for us to be full. Lord, help us. In Jesus' name, amen.